So in a best case scenario, I'd be able to go visit a state during shed season and learn the place. I'd be able to come back at the end of the summer and dial in the place. So this would be when I would go and scout fields in the evenings, try to see what kind of deer are out there. This is when I'd hang my camera so I can have some intel when I arrive to hunt later. And this would be when I would go and try to pick actual hunting locations. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we'll be joined with Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt and Meat Eater about planning your first or your next out-of-state deer hunt. Hey, Mark has traveled across the country chasing whitetails and provides a lot of great insight on not only the planning process, but also into how to set yourself up to be successful on these out-of-state hunts. So, I know you guys are going to want to stick around for that conversation. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA sponsor Matthews Archery. Uh, While deer season may seem like a long ways off, guys, it's going to be here before you know it. If, uh, If you're going to get a new bow for this season, now's the time to buy so you can have plenty of time to get it all set up, dialed in, plenty of time to practice in the off season. So if that's the case, be sure to check out Matthew's full lineup of hunting bows at MatthewsInc.com. Hey, I'm still using my Matthews VXR and uh, man, I just, I absolutely love it. But those new V3Xs look great and uh, offer some really cool new features worth checking out. So be sure to give Matthews a look. Again, that's MatthewsInc.com. Hey, our Furminator membership drive is still happening, but tickets are going quick on that. Uh, We're offering two special memberships, a $100 uh, version and a $250 version that will put you in a drawing for a six-foot Furminator G3 food plot implement worth around $9,000, as well as a 2022 NDA Rifle of the Year. Well, we're only selling 500 chances on this one, and we've already sold a bunch of those. I'm not sure what the total count is at this point, but I know uh, those tickets are going fast. So if that's something that uh, you're interested in, be sure to go ahead and jump on our website at deerassociation.com backslash Furminator and grab those tickets uh, before they're gone. And guys, one final thing. Uh, Don't forget about our upcoming first ever NDA Giving Day on May 11th. Uh, We're just a couple weeks out at this point, so please mark that on your calendars. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the NDA relies on on memberships and donations from folks like yourself, uh, along with the the help of of our corporate partners like Matthews. And so this will be an important day for us. Uh, Incredibly, we've already had somebody step up and agree to match all donations made on May 11th dollar for dollar, up to $50,000. So uh, again, we're just extremely excited about this first ever giving day of ours and hope you'll consider making a donation to help us ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. And guys, with that, hey, let's jump on the phone here with Mark Kenyon to talk about planning an out-of-state deer hunting trip. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Brian. Oh, not a problem. Uh, glad, glad to have you with us today and uh, appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to 
come on here and talk to us a little bit about planning an out-of-state hunt. Now, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, one that I know you've got a good bit of experience with. So uh, I, I feel pretty certain most of our listeners are going to be familiar with who you are. Um, but but if you would, maybe just give us a little, just a general overview of kind of what, what you have going on with Wired to Hunt and uh, Meat Eater. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I host the Wired to Hunt podcast. Uh, I I run our Wired to Hunt brand, which is part of the Meat Eater family, which is our whitetail, um, you know, our whitetail enthusiast, uh, I guess, media arm. So we're writing, we're producing videos, um, of course, doing the podcast. So uh, that's most of my day job. Um, I also host our whitetail TV show. So I hosted the Back 40, which was a show we had a few years ago. Um, last year, we launched a new one called One Week in November. Uh, and then we have a third new show premiering later this year, uh, which will be a totally different format, which I uh, filmed last year, uh, which would be super relevant to what we're going to discuss today because it was all <laughs> different out-of-state hunts. It was all over the place. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm the whitetail guy for Meat Eater. Eat, sleep, and breathe. Whitetail deer, love them. I'm a proud uh, NDA member. Love everything that uh, the National Deer Association has been doing over the years. Um, so that's what I do in the day job. I also write, I wrote a book about public land, um, which, which I'm real proud of as well. And, uh, other than deer hunting, I love all sorts of hunting, fishing, hiking, backpacking, all, all the good stuff outside. So, uh, <laughs> that's, that's me. There you go. A man of, of many hats for sure, but keeps me busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, and yeah, what, as you mentioned there, yeah, we we certainly appreciate uh, all of the the support you've given us over the years uh, at the at the NDA, and uh, you know what what you and and Meat Eater have done for us as far as on the you know donating the back forty property, and uh, just just look forward to you know kind of to seeing all the uh, the new hunters get to utilize that property, and uh, yeah, it's just a just a cool deal. Yeah, it's been it's been really cool to see. But hey, as you alluded to there, you you had a pretty eventful. 2021 2022 deer season uh that that features some pretty interesting hunts and we won't dive too deep into into each of those individual hunts because i know you know you've talked in depth about those on your own podcast and i want to make sure i leave plenty of time to to cover the actual topic at hand but if you would just maybe hit some of the highlights of that this past deer season uh you know where you went and kind of what made each of those hunts unique yeah, so uh, I'll give you the the highest of level uh, rundown, and then you tell me if you want more on any one of these. But uh, I did a a public land hunt in Idaho uh, with just a buddy of mine, and that was not for the show. That was just like a personal trip. Um, I did a uh, an urban deer hunt in the suburbs of Washington D.C., and that was I was I met up with a friend out there who's basically was going to help me get a, you know, get a firsthand idea of what that kind of hunting is like, what that kind of place is like to hunt in and, uh, and share with me kind of his best practices. So I spent a day with him learning all about that and then spend the next three, four days on my own trying to do it myself. Uh, so that was DC. Um, later that month in October, I went to Arkansas and packed in with a mule into the backcountry of some, uh, national forest with my pal Clay Newcomb. And learned about hunting the southern hills, um, still hunting with a muzzleloader, which is a really interesting one. Uh, a few weeks later, I went to, what did I do next? I oh, went to Iowa 
did kind of a classic runt hunt in Iowa, which was fun, uh, which was kind of a just a marathon of ups and downs and crazy things happening. But that was uh, that was memorable. Uh, following that, I immediately drove to Nebraska where I was hunting public land again, um, spent a day with another friend out there who's showing me how he hunts out in the Plains states using a handheld decoy, a handheld silhouette decoy, and actually tries to decoy bucks in on the ground while bow hunting and trying to get a shot at them at like 10, 20 yards at eye level. So I kind of watched him do that for a day and then took off for the rest of the week and tried to do that myself. That was incredible. Um, later in November, I went to Maine and met up with a guy named Hal Blood. He's kind of a legend in the Northeast for tracking deer down in the snow. Um, so again, similar thing, spent a day trying to see how he does all that and then spent the rest of the week trying it myself. So I actually got to walk in the footsteps of a, of a buck all over the hills and mountains of Maine, tracking these things down in the snow. And then in December, I went to Alabama and learned all about hunting deer by water. Uh, my buddy down there, Parker McDonald, has kind of specialized in using water access to find hard to reach whitetails. And so again, public land, kayaking around there, got on some deer and was able to get one killed there too. And then finally wrapped up the year in Wisconsin, um, kind of a classic Midwestern hunt there with a guy named Tom Indrabo and uh, hunted uh, hunted there in January, real, real late season cold, like negative 25 degree <laughs> type weather. And, uh, and that wrapped up the year. So I think it was, you know, if you take all those and then add in my home state, I think it was nine states last year. It was, uh, it was a marathon, but, <laughs> uh, learned a lot. It was, it was a year all about trying new things, learning new things. And, um, I definitely did that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's awesome. I, I love that, that each hunt for the most part was, was focused on a unique experience rather than, you know, going in trying to kill a, a certain caliber buck. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a lesson we could all learn from kind of going into the, the 2022 deer season here. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a lesson for me in that, in that too. It was, uh, it was a great kind of resetting of how I approach my hunts and my goals. And, um, I think it's, I think I'm going to look back on last year and see that as like a, like a fork in the road kind of year and, uh, where I go next, I think it's going to be different because of that. Yeah. Now, did you have a, a favorite out of, out of all those hunts? I think um, I think my two favorite hunts I, I don't know they're, they're, I could go a lot of ways with this but um, one of my favorites was the Nebraska hunt just because like on the ground holding the decoy uh, kind of really the heat of the rut it was just really intense uh, fast paced we were in like open country so you could see a lot of ground saw a lot of deer literally sprinting after deer trying to cut them off and get ahead of them and somehow stay out of sight and then pop up with a decoy, rattle them in. I mean, it was just, it was really high adrenaline whitetail hunting and uh, in a beautiful place too. So I loved that. Um, I love that uh, Idaho whitetail hunt because that's actually kind of like a cast and blast hunt. So by that, I mean uh, me and my buddy deer hunt in the morning and in the evening, and then we fish all through the middle of the day. And, uh, and that's a ton of fun. Just kind of, I think more than anything this year, I kind of, rediscover the joy of the experience so I, I didn't i think historically i've kind of approached whitetail hunting like terminator and you know i had like a mission and i had to accomplish this mission which was killing a big old buck and nothing would stand in the way and 
you know, I approached it like that. And this year I kind of rediscovered the joy in having a trip be more about the experience. And, and so, yeah, you know, if I wanted to take a morning and go fishing instead of hunting, that might reduce my chances of killing a deer that year, but it might improve the overall experience. So I gave myself permission to do that this year. Um, and, and many other things like that. And, um, I'm going to do that more. Yeah. Uh, that definitely, uh, that sounds like a worthy goal. And that, and that's really why I wanted to, uh, do this episode with you is just, to to maybe encourage some others out there to, uh, to maybe plan their first out of state hunting experience like that. And, uh, and yeah, maybe, you know, get out of, uh, not being focused so much on, like you said, uh, a, a, a certain caliber buck or, or absolutely having to fill that tag and just, uh, you know, en- enjoying the experience. Cause I know, you know, I haven't been on a ton of out of state hunts. I've been on several and, uh, I've never come back, you know, regretting the, the time or money I spent on that or, and even the ones where I weren't successful, you know, I never, I don't know, just di- it didn't beat myself up on it because it was such a cool experience. So yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, we can a lot encourage to be some other. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we can encourage some other folks to to try that and then gain that experience. But yeah, um, yeah. But but speaking of the uh, the upcoming season, have have you laid out your plans for this this season yet, or is that uh, is that still in the works? It's, it's in the works. It's coming together. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to travel as much this year. Last year, you know, I was gone, I think two months, if you added up all those trips and that just in the fall, uh, that was just too much. So I'm cutting back pretty significantly this year. Um, so that I do have some balance, you know, balance is important. Traveling is a great, great time, but, uh, traveling so much that you lose out on your local home stuff for me was also something I, um, I wanted to change. So this year I'm going to have a little bit more time to hunt the local stuff, uh, spend some time at the family deer camp, do those things. Um, but of course I still want to travel too. So I do have tentative plans to hunt Kansas, uh, during the rut. And if not Kansas, probably Nebraska again. Um, I'm going to hunt Texas for the first time. That's going to be an interesting one down there in December. Uh, and then I'm planning on going to North Dakota, uh, with my friend Tony to do some hunts out there on public land. So right now, that's what I have. We got North Dakota, Kansas, and Texas, and then home here in Michigan. Um, maybe one other state will get added on there. I'm, I'm unsure of that still, but right now, that's the tentative plan. Okay, yeah, still, still sounds like a, a busy fall coming up, but a, a a good one for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now, kind of, I guess going back to your your early. Uh, uh, hunting uh, career, I guess, for lack of a better term, but h- how long was it? How long had you been hunting before you started kind of venturing out on these, these out of state hunts? Well, I mean, I was involved in hunting since I was like three or four years old. Um, so my dad, grandpa, uncles, they all hunted. So I think, I think three years old was my first deer camp I got to go up to. So from that point on, I was, I was up there every season, um, sitting with my dad or sitting with my grandpa or sitting with my uncle. Um, you know, up until I, I can't remember what the age is that you could start bow hunting on, you know, at 12 or, or something like that here in Michigan. So that's when I started sitting by myself. Um, and you know, 12, 13 up until college when I graduated, I can't, was it? Yeah. I think my first out of state hunt was in college, um, Pennsylvania, I think. 
And then I really got into it as soon as I graduated. I had, you know, a lot of free time, not a lot of free time, but a different level of, I guess, freedom, maybe would be the way to put it, um, after college. So at that point, I started traveling, um, you know, pretty substantially started getting really deep into the, you know, the whole whitetail crazy lifestyle straight out of college. So it was, you know, trying to start drawing points for Iowa, go to Illinois, hunting Ohio, um, all those kind of peripheral states around where I live here in Michigan. So that, I guess that would have been, I don't know, I was like 21 or 22 and I'd started hunting when I was three or four. So you could say almost 20 years, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I suppose one thing to say I was hunting when I was sitting as a three-year-old in the bottom of the blind <laughs> next to my dad. I don't know if that counts or not. Yeah. Well, what was, I guess, what was your original motivation behind that first, that first out of state hunt? You know, I'll tell you, it's, um, I wish it was different, but I think if I'm being honest with myself, when I look back, not that the Pennsylvania one was different. That was like going with some family and that was, that was just like a, I was invited by my uncle and he had a place out in Pennsylvania where his family hunted. So that was just a really cool, fun kind of family experience. But when I started going out of state, you know, right out of college, I was just like very focused on wanting to find big bucks. And I had, you know, from my experience in Michigan and from things I'd read and things I was learning, I was kind of getting the idea like, man, it's tougher. It's, it's not slim pickings here in Michigan, but if I go to Illinois, if I go to Iowa, if I go to Ohio, you'll finally get to see those bucks like you see on TV or in the magazines. Um, so at that point in my life, that was very, very appealing to me. And so that was probably like the first thing that drove me to travel, uh, was like chasing that dream. Um, uh, what I will tell you though, like pretty quickly upon starting that, I realized there was a lot more to it than just big deer. Um, there was, there was a whole peripheral set of, of things that were a lot of fun, um, that I quickly realized, you know, made me want to keep doing those types of trips regardless of big deer or not. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the answer to this is probably pretty obvious based on, uh, you know, the fact that, <laughs> that you've kept going and, and really turned it into something that, that drives you. But, uh, were, were you hooked right away? I guess that first out of state hunt was, was that something that, uh, just from that point on, you wanted to, to do something like that every year? Yeah, definitely. I, and I mean, for so many reasons, I think that, you know, one, I did see way different deer than I was seeing at home. So like the first thing I was looking for, bigger deer, all of a sudden I was seeing them. And so that was like a, oh my gosh, kind of moment um, where you realize that, oh, these aren't just fictional characters on TV. These are real critters that do exist. Um, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was cool. There, I, I don't think there's anything wrong um, with appreciating and marveling at a big deer um they are awesome animals and uh you know going down to southern ohio and driving around on a august night and seeing 10 bucks that are you know 140 inches or bigger i mean deer that i'd never seen in my entire life in 22 years in michigan and i could see 10 of them in one night you know driving around that was like uh that was just like a kid in a candy store kind of moment so it was like shocking from that perspective and i was you know, hooked in that kind of way. Uh, but then just, you know, the, the sense of adventure, the sense of seeing new places, uh, the camaraderie with my buddies, us, we'd all drive down together. We'd rent the sleaziest, cheapest hotel rooms we'd get. <laughs> we'd, we'd pile yeah. six guys into a $35 a night hotel room and, you know, just try to make stuff work when we were, you know, young, dumb, poor kids. And, uh, and that stuff was just so much fun. I, I look back on those kinds of stories and moments and sitting there in the 
cruddy hotel room, you know, sharing pizzas, watching hunting videos on the TV, uh, like all those things stand out as some of the best memories. And, uh, and yeah, you know, every different kind of place I've been to every different kind of trip, every new friend I've brought along or met on these trips. I mean, they all, they all are another brick in the wall for why I really enjoy the traveling side of hunting. Yeah. Now, were, were you able to find success pretty early on these trips or did, uh, was that something that, that took you a while to kind of figure things out? Um, that's a good question. Let me think about this. Um, I think my first two years of traveling, I did not get a deer, but, uh, my third year I did. Um, and then after that, mm, I think I've gone almost every year since then I've killed at least one buck out of state on a trip there. I'm, I'm sure there's an exception or two within there, but give or take, I've been traveling every year. Uh, multiple times every year and, and usually I'm able to find some success on one of those. Um, you know, not always huge bucks, but, uh, but have been able to bring something home on most of those trips, but plenty of, plenty of empty handed returns as well. Yeah. Now I know obviously last year you, you mixed it up with some, some very unique hunts, but in general, are, are you the type that do you like to go back to places that, that, you know, and you're familiar with or, or maybe a place you've hunted and you weren't successful, so there's there's that drive there to to find success. Or are you more the type you you prefer to see new ground every chance you get? I'm a little bit of both. Um, I I definitely have had times where I've hunted a spot and had success there, and you know, eventually was like, ah, you know, I, I kind of get it. Like I know it here. I know what to do now. I want that new challenge. Um, and and have that desire to go somewhere else because. A big part of the fun for me is that chess match. It's the puzzle that you're trying to find all the different pieces and how they line up and where they go and which are the edge pieces and which ones have got the blue colors and which ones have the orange colors and that whole thing um, in a whitetail as a, you know, as an analogy for whitetail hunting. Um, I really love that process. And if I show up at a place and the puzzle's already all put together there and they're just sitting down in front of me, that takes a lot out of it for me. Um, so, so there've been many cases where I have said, yeah, I, I want to see somewhere new. I re- I love that what's around the next corner kind of thing. So, so yes, I've had a number of those where I want to try something new, but I, I will tell you that there have been some experiences, some places where I'm, you know, just, man, I just love this place and I want to keep doing it. I just want to keep seeing, and maybe it's because of just the landscape or maybe it's because, you know, We've just got a good thing going and it's, it's more of like a friend group kind of thing. And we all go there together and just have a good time. Um, I've had that too. Um, I've also had a couple spots that are kind of a combination of both where it's awesome place, great deer situation. But for some reason I haven't been able to get it done. And they're like a, a sore in my side that I just <laughs> yep. really, really badly want to get at. And uh, there's a couple of those that are still, um, still like that craw and uh i don't know the right way to describe but like but yes i have to like i have to get that figured out so i've I've got all three of those kinds of situations so um a little bit of everything i guess yeah yeah i understand i'm right there with you i I love seeing new places but man if i hunt somewhere and and just feel like i got beat down uh, i want to go back you know i want to go back and and try to find that success so yeah yeah I, i love those challenges i mean the the struggle and the success are all part of it absolutely so I guess I'm going to ask you to speculate here a little bit, but what do you think keeps most hunters from, from ever, you know, venturing out of their home state to hunt? Uh, I think two things. 
I think there's one group of people who uh, have just gotten comfortable in their current setting, in their home spot or their local club or their family property or lease or whatever. And they know it well and they have success. You know, they, they know they get their buck and that's been enough. And it uh, it's a really easy, comfortable thing to keep going back to and doing. So I think there's some people like that who who just kind of fall into a groove and the groove is pretty good. It's pretty all right. And they stick with it um, and they see people traveling or doing these other things. And that looks like a lot of work or that looks like a pain in the butt or that looks like a whole lot of time and energy to throw into something that you might not kill a big deer. Um, I mean, I've got a a friend who, you know, hunts in an amazing deer hunting state and it's it's great. There's There's some of the best deer in the world there. And I always told him, like, why don't you hunt more states? Why don't you go other places and experience new things? And he says, well, why would I ever leave here when it's so darn good? And I, and I guess I couldn't argue with him on that on one level. I mean, I, I had an argument for him and I told him there's other things out there that are still worth experiencing. But at the same time, like, I guess if you got a good thing going and you don't desire more um, or different, then I guess I can't fault you. I mean, everyone's different, right? Some people want that that. uh diversity, I guess, and experience. And some people are happy with what they got. So, so I guess I'm okay with that if that's what they want. Um, I think there's another group of people though, that want that other thing. They see it, they read about it, they hear about it and they think, gosh, that looks awesome. But I think they're intimidated by it. They think it's something that, oh, only, only people who are really experienced could pull that off or only people that have a bunch of money could pull that off or only people who are older and you know, I've got a bunch of buddies that they can do it with could do this or only people that, you know, this or that, right? There's, there's different excuses for why other people could do it, but, but I couldn't. I think that is, I think there's certainly an intimidation factor for some folks that this stuff's too hard, too out of reach, um, too and many different things. And um, so I think there's a group of folks there. Um, and of course, you know, my perspective on that is that there's, there's way fewer roadblocks than you might assume uh, if you're willing to give it a shot. Um, I think right off the top of my head, those would be the two groups of factors that might keep people from hitting the road and, and trying something new. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that, that second group that, you know, I hope, I hope to reach with this podcast, you know, uh, obviously if you're content with, with where you're hunting and, and what you're doing and have no desire to, to go anywhere else, then, then that's like you said, that's certainly fine. I don't would never want to pressure somebody to do something that they they just absolutely don't want to do. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, like you said, I think there's a lot of guys out there that just they're like, well, like you said, that are just intimidated by it. Maybe they think they can't afford it, or uh, like you said, that's just it, it's the hurdles are too too high to overcome. Uh, but but that's certainly not the case. And again, that's kind of what I what I want to break down here today because uh, as I mentioned earlier, man. I, I haven't done a ton of trips. I, I have more planned. I've done several and uh, just always, always come back, you know, just, just longing for the next one, you know, uh, just regardless of whether I had success or killed anything. Um, like you said, it's, it's just the, the experience, the camaraderie, that kind of stuff that just keeps you, keeps you wanting to go back and uh, just, just makes me want to, you know, help, help some of these folks get that same experience that, that maybe, think it's out of reach so yeah yeah absolutely 
Now, uh, unfortunately, this year may be a uh, a little rougher financially on on out of state hunters or those yeah. uh, interested yeah. in going out of state. If at least if the cost of fuel and everything stays as high as it is now, but uh, it's certainly still still doable on a budget. And so, just curious, uh, I guess, what kind of tips would you throw out there? For kind of keeping cost to a minimum and, and you mentioned one already there you know stuffing six guys into a, a cheap motel <laughs> i've certainly done done stuff like that and uh and to me that's that's better sometimes than uh you know tent camping it I'd, I'd i'd rather have uh, six guys in a in a hotel room with a with warm beds and a hot shower but uh what what's kind of i guess some of your tips for keeping costs down on these trips yeah i, I think the first thing i would just just reemphasize, I guess, is that you don't need to have a lease. You don't need to have an outfitted hunt. You don't need to have any of these expensive things to have a quality out-of-state hunt. You can do these hunts on the cheap. You also don't need to go to Iowa and pay $650 for a tag. You don't need to go to Illinois and pay $500 for a tag. You don't need to go to one of these expensive tag states to have a quality out-of-state hunt. So don't don't make those assumptions and, and and write it off right out the gate and say, man, look at that price tag. There's no way I can afford that right now. You can have a terrific out-of-state hunt in a state where they sell out-of-state tags for 100 bucks, Or you can have a terrific out-of-state hunt and do what we just described. Split the costs of travel and a hotel room with a group of friends and make it cheap. Do it kind of, you know, vagabond it. There's nothing wrong with it. My, many of my favorite hunting trips and travels have been that kind of thing where you're just doing it on the cheap, budgeting it out. And, uh, and man, that's, that's the good stuff, right? When you simplify things, when you're not worried about fancy location, when you're not worried about expensive, this or that, um, it just gets down to kind of the bare bones of who you're with and the experience itself. That's what it's all about. So when it comes to saving money on these trips, um, I know you mentioned you prefer a hotel over camping, but I will advocate for camping for those of you who do like it. If you like camping, uh, man, that's a really good way to save a lot of money on a trip because that's usually one of the biggest expenses you have on these trips. You know, these days, a lot of places you're looking $100 or more for a hotel room in many locations, at least. And if you're on a week long trip, you know, that that adds up fast, um, especially if you're solo. So if you're solo, I would really suggest trying to find a way to camp. Um, there's plenty of camping in many states, you know, actual campgrounds. If you're hunting public land, many different, um, public land designations allow free camping. You gotta, you need to know that you need to check the regulations, but for example, national forest land, BLM land, um, many of those places there's free dispersed camping. You can pull off the side of the road, pull off down a gravel road and, and camp there for free. Nothing. So if that's available to you in the area you're hunting, I'd highly suggest taking advantage of that. Um, and of course, if you're not and you're going with friends, yeah, do the cheap hotel room thing. I mean, w- we have honestly stayed at rooms that cost like $40 a night. They weren't the cleanest. They definitely weren't the fanciest. There were some, there's been some weird things that have happened at these places, but it makes for great stories. And, uh, you know, we've, we've only had one bed bug incident. Um, We've we've learned to bring your own pillows or your own pillowcases, <laughs> and uh, you know just just check things out. But uh, but ninety nine percent of the time they've been just fine, 
And, uh, you know, we've been able to split it with a group of folks and make it super affordable. Um, you know, another thing to think about is food. Um, if you're super tight on food, I would really suggest not eating out and buying stuff there in town, wherever you're at. Um, cause that adds up a lot, right? Going to the gas station for breakfast, going to some diner for lunch, getting pizza at night. That adds up pretty quick over the course of a week or a long weekend or whatever you're doing. Um, so I've done a number of trips, especially these like public land trips where I've gone solo and I'm camping out there out of my truck. What I, what I started doing was just packing a cooler with all the food I need from home. So I'd have everything as, as, as pre done as I possibly could. So I'd have my breakfast stuff. I kept it very simple. I usually do like bars or something like that. Just like, you know, cereal bars or granola bars for breakfast. Lunch, I've got like super simple, like peanut butter jelly or ham sandwich or something. And then for dinners, I would either do, um, you know, uh, freeze dried meals or my wife and I would pre-make dinners and then freeze them. So, for example, we did this with like chili. We did it with stew. We did it with um, yeah, what's some other stuff we've done? That nah, doesn't matter. A few things like that. And we'll, we'll pre-make a meal, like a one pot meal, freeze it. And then when I leave for my trip, I put all these in my big cooler and that helps keep everything else in there cold. And then when it gets to whatever night of the week I want to use that, I would just have my pot of chili that was frozen. It's now defrosted. And then I would have just a little tiny backpacking stove where I would reheat each of these meals every night and have a good hot meal that was made previously. Um, doing that, you can save a lot of money versus having to buy individual dinners every night, you know, and all the other extra expenses that come with that. So, so that's a good way to cut some costs. Um, man, what else? Um, I think one other thing I guess worth mentioning, if public lands outside of your comfort level or not in your area, I know lots of people worry about access, right? And I just want to reemphasize the fact that you can get private land permission for free still too. Now it's not as easy as it used to be. It takes work, but you can still get knock on door permission. And so don't let that whole thing keep you from trying this too. You know, uh, Iowa is a perfect example. I think a lot of people look at the state of Iowa as like the most hyped big buck state in the country. And it's it's easy to assume that, oh man, you, you probably need to own land there or you probably need to go with an outfitter to kill a big buck. Or you probably need a lease or, you know, yada, yada, yada. Everything must be locked up. But I went out there a handful of years ago and just knocked on a bunch of doors and I ended up getting access to more than a thousand acres nice. just by knocking on doors. And this wasn't like 20 years ago. This was like seven years ago or something. Um, so, so this is still something that folks can do today. You can get free permission. Um, you know, it's, it's again, it's a commitment. It's an investment in a different kind of way. So maybe you're not investing money, but you're investing your time and your energy and, and maybe your pride walking up to a whole lot of doors and getting a no. Um, but you can do these kinds of things. So if you're on a budget, don't make the don't let don't let that hold you back. These things can certainly be done on the cheap, and uh, I don't think you'll have a lesser experience because of that. Yeah, yeah, that's some great advice. And I, I'll say this too, and and not to get too far off track because I know we're we're talking about going on out of state hunts here. But uh, you know, there's been years where you know if I I couldn't afford to to do an out of state hunt, um, you can simply find a new a new place to go in state uh you know grab some friends and, yeah. and try hunting a different part of your state somewhere with some different habitat or you know a different track of public land or just some place you've never been and 
you know, you get a lot of those same benefits. You get those same great experiences, but uh, a, a little more affordably, I guess, you know, without the, the out-of-state tags and that kind of stuff. So Yeah, I think that's a great I'll, point. I'll throw that out there, too. I've, I've tried to do that a little bit, especially um, I, I'm a transplant from Kentucky to Georgia. So, you know, there's a lot of parts of Georgia that, that I still haven't got to experience. So I try to throw some some in-state stuff in as well. But Yeah, I like that. But with with that, let's let's kind of jump into the actual planning process for an out of state hunt. And you know, I, I guess obviously one of the first steps in, in planning any type of deer hunt like this is going to be choosing a destination, and and that starts with with picking a state to hunt. So, how have uh, what's kind of been your process and your decision making process when it comes to kind of deciding what what state you want to deer hunt? You know, it's, it's varied over the years. Um, early on, you know, when I was more focused on, man, I just want to try to figure out where I can have the best chance to kill a mature buck. Um, you know, at that point I was looking at, you know, what's there's all, all this kind of data is out there. So you can go and look in the record books and pull up state information and find out what states have, you know, had the most documented Pope and young kills, or you can see what counties have the most, you know, registered Boone and Crockett bucks. You can get all that kind of information these days. And if that's what's important to you, you can find that. You can find out that, hey, you know, if I want to hunt Indiana, probably my best bet is the far western central part of the state, the far southeastern part of the state, or maybe the northeastern corner. Um, for example, you can go and drill down and try to find like a zone that has the best odds for the kind of deer you're looking for. And then that can be a starting point. So let's say hypothetically that's what you're wanting to do. You want to try to determine this. You can go and you can look at the list and you can say, okay, these are the top 10 states for Pope and Young Bucks. And then you can look in those states and you could say, okay, what are the tag costs for each one of these? And then what's the distance for my home for each of these states? And you could say, all right, well, this state's this much cost for tag. This state costs this much. This state costs this much. And then, you know, take that into account within how far away they are from home. And let's say you look and you find a state that is not too far away from home and doesn't have one of those very most expensive tags, we'll say you look at those things and that ends up being Kentucky. Let's say hypothetically, Kentucky seems to be relatively close to where you live. It's not crazy expensive. And oh, by the way, it's got a pretty high degree of Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young Bucks that are coming into the state, coming out of the state. Then you're going to look in the state and you could go by county and you could then find out that, okay, looks like most of the big deer are getting killed in the western part of the state. So now you're going to start looking on the western part of the state. At this point, what I would like to do once I kind of narrow down to a region, I start pulling up the aerials of uh, a region of a state and I just start looking for habitat that I like. I like to look at an aerial with property lines overlaid. So when I first started doing this stuff, I actually had to you know buy a physical plat book that would show you property lines or you could go and you could Google county GIS maps where they would show you the property lines and then you would have to you'd have to cross reference that with Google Earth or uh you know something like that but now of course we have a, many different you know mobile apps that will do that for you much more easily so now I use Onyx which shows me all those things very easily right in the same place so I'll go and I'll look in this corner of this county of Kentucky I'll throw on the aerial layer and I'll throw on the private property layer or if I'm hunting public land I'll throw on the public property layer and then I'll just start looking at where's a piece of property or a bunch of pieces of property that just look good from a habitat perspective, right? I'm looking for food. I'm looking for quality security cover. 
Uh, if I'm hunting public land, I'm trying to find something that's going to get me away from people. So maybe that's a big piece of property where it's hard to get to a side of it or hard to get to a corner of it or hard to get across this river. If it's small, maybe I'm looking for really small out of the way spots that people might overlook or that people wouldn't want to cross the lake or that people wouldn't want to climb up this 800 foot cliff to get to a spot. I'm going to look for different locations like that and I'm going to start building a list. Um, when it comes to private land, I, I like to try to go and have like a list of 10 or more properties that have, you know, those features that should make for good deer hunting. And I will list out those properties and the property owners and address information so that I can go and door knock. Um, if it's public land, I'm just going to try to have a handful of different public locations that look promising. Um, and so, you know, that would then be what would give me the the information necessary to then make my first in-person visit. So if I'm going to continue with this example in Kentucky, in a perfect world, if I can swing it, I'd like to do a trip in the early spring. Best case scenario, I think, is to go there during shed season because that's before green up and you can get a double duty kind of visit in. If you can swing a couple days in March and go to this region you want to try to hunt, if you're hunting public land, you can go and walk that property and scout it. And that's just a, such a great time to scout a property before all the new growth is up. And you can very clearly see the train. You can very clearly see sign from last year. You can very clearly see everything just the way it will be in October or November or December. So scout the place out, learn it and start deciding, okay, of these 10 public chunks or these 10 places on public land, you know, this one looks really good still. This one looks really good. This one has nine tree stands all around it and not a lick of deer sign. So I'm going to cross that off the map and, and go through and do that. Uh, if it's private land that you're planning on hunting, this is a really good way to get your foot in the door on these properties. Rather than going and asking for deer hunting permission, go to these doors and ask for shed hunting permission. Um, your likelihood of getting a yes is, I think, significantly higher. And if you can introduce yourself and establish a relationship with that lesser ask, you know, asking to go walk around and look for deer antlers, you now have this opportunity to build a relationship, to demonstrate trust. You know, they realize you're not a weirdo. You're not a person who's going to damage their property. And you go, you walk the property, you get a chance to maybe find some antlers. You get a chance to kind of learn about the property, determine if you actually do want to try to hunt here. And then you get to begin that relationship. Then if you like a place and if you have a great conversation with the landowner and you found an antler and everything looks great, well, now you can give them a call back or stop back again next, you know, a couple months later or whatever and say, hey, really appreciate you letting me come out and walk, you know, back in March. Really enjoyed our conversation, yada, yada, yada. I'm hoping to come back and deer hunt in the area this coming fall for a week. Would you have any interest in allowing me to hunt again, you know, November 7th through 15th? Your odds of getting a yes now, I think, are dramatically higher than if you had showed up out of the blue asking to deer hunt. So that's a really, really good way to go about it if you can swing that trip in the spring. Um, that would be, you know, that would be, <laughs> this is a, that was a very long-winded way, Brian, of, no, no, of saying perfect. what I would do. But that would be how I approach things, you know, when I was very focused on like trying to find a spot to kill a big old buck. I would say the one thing that's different for me now um, from that is that I, I'm not really, I'm not Terminator, you know, I'm not trying to go in and seek and destroy a big mature buck anymore. I'm more and more choosing 
where I travel because of the place I want to go. It's it's not like, you know, I'm not going to go to some random corner of Indiana, maybe that doesn't look appealing to me at all, but it's got big deer. I, I think I'm more interested in going places now where maybe I've got some friends that I want to spend some time with, or maybe there's a beautiful lake system that I think would be really awesome to spend a week paddling around on and fishing and deer hunting and looking for grouse and uh, watching the colors change. Or maybe I want to go out to some great plain state because I just love that terrain and I love seeing deer 600 yards off and chasing them down. And maybe I don't have as good of odds of killing a 160-inch buck, but that 115-inch three-year-old is going to be so much fun in such a cool location that I couldn't care. So that's how my decision uh, matrix, I guess, is shifting a little bit. You know, neither one's right or wrong. They've both worked well for me. Um, and and that's that's kind of how I've approached too. So I would tell you that, you know, I'm kind of doing some kind of uh, hybrid between those two now. Yeah. Do you ever make any phone calls to the state wildlife agency, maybe a local biologist or game warden or anything like that? Have, have you ever done that to gather any intel on an area? Yeah. Yeah. So I've done some of that. I've, I've emailed folks, um, some of the buddies that I've hunted with where we've, we've done trips together. They've done some phone calls. Um, I've done reading on forums. I've like back channeled, like, you know, just tried to like reach out to anyone I know in the area and ask them, do you know anyone in the area? Do you know, you know, folks, <clears throat> sometimes there's been situations where I could find someone who, who wants a little bit of info that I have about a fishing location or about somewhere that I've hunted in the past, but I'm not planning on going again. And you can share that in exchange. They might give you a little bit of beta on a spot you want to go. Um, so there's a lot of like that, especially these days with social media. I think it's a lot easier to have connections across the country, maybe than we ever used to. Um, whether it be some people that are a part of a conservation organization that you're part of too, like maybe NDA members from different parts of the state or different parts of the country you can reach out to or whatever it is. Um, I do think mining your personal network is a great way to get, you know, some suggestions or, or just as important, not asking like, where should I hunt, but asking where shouldn't I hunt? Like, Hey, I'm, I've been thinking about this spot and this spot. Do you know anything? Are there any kind of stuff that I should watch out for? Sometimes that can be the very best information when you find out like, Oh yeah, actually this spot just gets destroyed by people because of this one town, even though it's 45 minutes away there's this long-standing tradition and everyone comes out this week. So definitely don't go there the week of October 20th. You know, it's that kind of stuff. Um, so yes, I highly recommend doing as much digging as you can. Um, when you're, if you can go in the spring for that visit or the summer for a scouting visit or whenever it is, you know, if you're the kind of person who can, you know, who feels comfortable hobnobbing, you know, go to the local bar or the local diner and just chat people up, try to get some information about the area, get some information about, what the tradition of hunting out there is like. Do a lot of people come out for gun season? Is bow season a big deal? Does anybody care about whitetails here? Um, there's a lot you can pick up from just being a decent, you know, communicator and person and just chatting with folks and uh, see what you can learn. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're talking about, you know, internet, the internet and social media there. I, I took my son out a few years back or several years back now, I guess, to, to Nebraska to turkey hunt. And, and just from, I think I maybe just posted some pictures of like where we were at on my social media feed and like a guy, some random guy that, that I was, you know, friends with on Facebook just reaches out and, and starts saying, he's like, Hey, I, I know where you guys are at. And he 
starts telling us he was a local and starts, you know, giving us some pointers on, on where to go and, and even invited us up to hunt with him, with him. And, uh, we, we wasn't able to make that work out, but, uh, it, it's funny. I, like you said, you ha- most of us have a, a network out there, um, through social media and, and the internet that, uh, that can certainly help you out in these situations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, obviously like anything else, you know, you kind of, kind of got to vet the information you're getting but uh there, there's still a lot of a lot of good folks out there who are willing to yeah, help for help sure yeah yep always got to pass things through the bs filter <laughs> yeah uh, as far as travel for these hunts now are you are you driving to the majority of these hunts or do you ever you ever fly or what's your travel like yeah so it's been 99 percent driving just the last year or so I've started flying just because I'm doing this for work. So it's, you know, it's, it's a unique situation where I'm traveling all across the country. Sometimes you know, in very short time periods for long standing periods, filming this stuff. So that's, that's the only reason why I've ever flown. Um, but I got, I have learned some stuff over the last year now having to fly with a firearm or your bow that I never had done before. But, um, usually you know, I prefer to drive. I just like driving. I like the uh, freedom that gives you the, ver- the kind of versatility, I guess it gives you. Um, and on a decent number of hunts, you know, I, I just sleep in the back of my pickup truck too. So it's a, it's a mobile deer camp. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I, I'm a driver if, if when I can be, um, but I guess, you know, for those of who may be, you know, they're, they're going somewhere. It's far enough that it makes sense to, to fly. What, uh, what advice can you give them? What have you learned, I guess, as far as, um, get, getting all that gear to where you need to go? Cause I guess that's the thing that's always intimidated me. I, I look at how much stuff I pack with me on these hunts and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute uh, on gear. But, uh, I just think, man, how in the world would I ever fly and, and take all this stuff that I want to have with me on these trips? Yeah. Well, I could tell you one thing, and, and I don't mean this to be a product plug, but it's going to be. Um, That's all right. I, I don't know how I would do a fly-in to deer hunt without hunting from a saddle. You know, if I had to bring a bunch of tree stands with me to hunt, I just, I don't know how you could do that unless you were going, you know, and driving ahead of time and pre-setting a bunch of tree stands. But the way I primarily hunt today is I'm hunting new locations. I'm kind of running gunning um, with a climbing sticks and a saddle. And so I was able to take all of my hunting gear in one duffel bag. Literally all of my hunting gear for a week of hunting would fit into one big duffel. And that would have a pair, a set of climbing sticks. It would have my saddle, my little saddle platform and, you know, my accessories and my binoculars and harness, uh, all that kind of stuff. And I would then fill in all the gaps of the duffel with all my clothing and, you know, I just had to really pare things down and just figure out like, what are the essentials, the absolute essentials that I have to have with me. And, um, and I pack them all in there. One thing I tell you, if you are going to travel on a plane with climbing sticks in a duffel bag, make (laughs) sure you pad the, uh, the claws on the back of your stick, right? The, 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 I'm, I'm blanking on the right terminology here. I'm having a brain fart, but, uh, the pieces on the back of your climbing stick that dig into the tree, those things are sharp especially on today's sticks, they're making them sharper and sharper. And the first time I flew with them, I just was not thinking about it and did not cover those up well. And they punctured one of my bags. So now I have used a variety of different things to cover those up so that they're not so sharp and they don't poke through your bag, right? Because the 
folks uh, at the air at the airline are tossing your bag all over the place. They're not babying it. So I've done bubble wrap. I've used socks. I've used um, koozies like neoprene, like koozies. I've wrapped those over top of things. I've wrapped underwear around them. Um, anything you can do to pad those so you're not ripping stuff up in your bag, do that. Um, so, uh, and I guess another thing is I've also used my bow case to get my clothing, right, for extra space. Um, I will fill any gaps in my bow case with clothes as well. So that's been a way to uh, to be able to travel with more stuff. Um, stuff that duffel bag tight and then every gap I can find in my bow case is filled with clothes too. Um, so that would be one thing as far as packing. Be minimalist. Um, do those things I just mentioned. If you're flying with a gun or a bow, of course, get to the airport earlier because you have to go through a whole different process, right? To check in oversized luggage, to go through the firearm checking kind of process. Um, you've got to go and declare the firearm and they have to, you know, do a whole bunch of different stuff just to check it out, check out your gun case, all that kind of stuff. So just budget an extra, I don't know, at least an extra half an hour, if not a little bit more, just to be on the safe side. Um, get a really good case. Um, they're not that expensive. Uh, I was able to get one of the, you know, a pretty high quality SKS or uh, Pelican. I think I've got one of each. Now one's a bow case, one's a, a rifle case. And I think it was I don't know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks probably for each of those. And uh, that was well worth the money just to keep your stuff from getting damaged. Um, and then the last thing, though, I would say, even if you have those good cases, be sure to double check your sites or your zero once you get to your location, because they do throw that stuff around at the uh, at the airport. So oh, yeah. definitely, definitely, definitely check. Um, I had multiple times where I was way off. So. Um, so those would be, I guess, my my couple things I've learned over this past year flying a bunch more with my gear. Now, do you have to? It's been a long time since I've flown with a firearm, but I, I know when I did, uh, I had to have locks on my case. Is, is that still the case, or, or in, and is, does that apply to bows as well? Or yes. Do you know? Okay. Yep. Both need to be uh, both need to be locked. You got to use TSA approved locks because they open them back there by themselves. Um, and they've got some special way to do that with these TSA locks. So, um, yes, get those well worth the trouble and 10 bucks they cost. Okay. Well, as far as gear, we touched on gear a little bit here and, uh, yeah, I like the idea of padding your bow case with extra clothes. That's, that's, uh, that's a good idea there, but I, I won't have you, you know, go through your full gear list. Cause obviously that's going to vary from person to person and depending on what you're hunting and where you're hunting all that. Uh, but, you know, I guess over the years, I'm curious to hear how, how has your gear list changed over time? Have, have you, have you whittled it down a lot to kind of the bare necessities or, or do you find yourself taking more now than you used to, to make sure you have everything covered? What, what's that like? Yeah, it, it's, it's gone more and more minimalist. Um, so uh, as I already mentioned, I, I went from being like a bunch of different tree stands to now a, a single saddle and a single set of sticks. Um, so I've trimmed that down tremendously. Um, so yes, saddle sticks platform. Um, I used to, um, you know, take all sorts of accessories, all sorts of different scent control products, all that kind of stuff. And I do use some of those things still, but when I travel, especially if I'm flying and don't have as much space, I've definitely cut more and more of those off and just not worried about them. Like 
for all these uh, flying hunts where I just had so much stuff to deal with. I've not brought my Ozonics. I've not brought like spray sprays and stuff like that. I think all those things can help you some. And I will, you know, when I'm here locally in Michigan, I'll use them. But when I'm counting ounces and trying to jam pack a bunch of stuff, I, I'm willing to cut some of those things out just because you have to. Um, so those are the types of things like on a traveling hunt like that, they'll get the axe. Um, you know, the only stuff that I bring doubles of, I try to bring doubles of my release because I'm very paranoid about breaking a release and having to switch to something that's not mine and that I'm not used to. Um, you know, bring extra broadheads, plenty of arrows. Um, you know, when I drive to go on hunts, I've started bringing, and this is, you know, I, not everybody is in a position to have this, but I have had, you know, multiple bows. So I will bring a backup bow now with me and leave it in the truck just in case, you know, if I I have multiple bows, might as well have a second one just in case you have something happen and break one. And then you're already, you're 1500 miles from home and you still have six days left to hunt and have got a busted bow. Uh, I'd hate to have be in that situation. So on a driving hunt now, I've started doing that. Um, Of course, can't do that flying. Um, you know, when it comes to clothes, I don't bring extras of, of anything typically where I've got like my base layer, I've got my mid layer, like I've got one of everything and I'm just going to live with that, um, as much as possible. You know, if I'm camping on a hunt, I'll bring, you know, there might be one extra of something in case I get soaked in a rainstorm or something like that. Um, but I, I definitely try to keep things super minimal now. Less is best as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> what else? Um, and I don't know. Those are the things that jump out to me right out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good stuff. And yeah, I, I, I just started saddle hunting this, this past year as well. And it's funny, as you were talking about that, I got to thinking we, we made a trip to Kentucky. I still have family in Kentucky and it was either Thanksgiving or Christmas, but I, I wanted to try to get a, a, a hunt in while we were there. And we were just driving my my wife's car, and so to uh, you know, in the past, trying to if I'd have tried to pack a climber and and all my gear in there, uh, I would have never got got everything in there. But yeah, like you said, man, it just condenses everything so much. Just a saddle and some climbing sticks, and uh, you know, the bulkiest thing was my bow and the bow case. Yeah, yeah, and, it's uh, it's pretty pretty transformational as far as what a difference that makes. Yep, yep, absolutely. Now, as far as um, scouting and kind of preparations for the actual hunt. You, you touched on this a good bit, but I guess, okay, let's say you've, you've either picked out a piece of public land or maybe you've gotten permission on private land on where you're going to hunt. Um, let's say you, you, you're not able to get out there, um, ahead of time. What's going to be kind of your process as far as scouting this thing from afar and, and what, what are you specifically looking for? I guess, uh, before you ever step foot on the property. Yeah. So I, I will just, I will add one thing to what I mentioned earlier about in-person scouting. Like that early spring shed season is my favorite time to go. But in a perfect world, I would like to go in late summer too. So in a best case scenario, I'd be able to go visit a state during shed season and learn the place. I'd be able to come back at the end of the summer and dial in the place. So this would be when I would go and scout fields in the evenings, try to see what kind of deer are out there. This is when I'd hang my camera so I can have some intel when I arrive to hunt later. And this would be when I would go and try to pick actual hunting locations. So the the spring one would be when I get the lay of the land 
and determine whether I want to hunt a general zone. And then I go in August and this would be when I pick, okay, I think this location, this location, this location, and this location are my top four spots. Um, so that's in like a best case scenario. I would try to have that amount of preparation into a traveling hunt if I could swing it, if it's not so far or so cost prohibitive that I can. Now, the scenario you mentioned, let's say I can't travel at all to these places. I'm going to show up cold turkey on the day of my hunt. Um, definitely want to do a good amount of e-scouting leading up to it. Um, so hopefully we, we've done all that stuff I already mentioned, which is you know how you zero in on the, the location you want to hunt. So I'm going to assume we've already picked our state and our region and our county and our specific private properties or specific chunks of public that we like the looks of based on that e-scouting already. Now I'm trying to break down a specific property or a specific chunk of public that I'm going to hunt. Um, and so I'm going to start by thinking about, okay, what's the time of year of hunting? And that's going to help me determine what are the key features that I want to key in on. So if it's early season or late season, I'm really interested in knowing, okay, where are the best food sources for this kind of year? And then where do I think deer are going to be bedded at that time of year? Um, right. Those are pretty key things. If instead I'm going to go during the rut, now I'm thinking, all right, well, where are my best bedding areas where those does are probably going to be bedded and the bucks are probably going to be checking out? Or where are the best terrain or cover pinch points that are going to funnel deer movement into small areas as those big bucks are cruising from spot to spot to spot looking for does? I'm going to be trying to find all of these different features on an aerial map or on a topographic map. In a perfect world, you've got both of those layers so you can see the cover, right? You can actually see the from the air picture of the tree cover, of the fields, whatever's there. And then you can also see the topographic lines which will help you understand what the actual terrain looks like, where the ridges are, where the valleys are, where the saddles are, where the ups and downs and in-betweens are. Um, these days with, you know, Onyx or Go Hunt or whatever, you can get a 3D rendering of many of these places too. So you, you can actually see like a 3D model of what the terrain looks like. So again, that really helps you pick these places apart. Um, you know, anywhere where there's some degree of elevation change, deer movement becomes significantly more predictable because right there's certain ways deer use terrain in a relatively consistent fashion whether it's georgia or nebraska if there's a ridge line and there's a low spot in that ridge that's a saddle deer are going to want to go through that low spot because deer do two things almost always they will take the path of least resistance as long as it doesn't put them in danger so if you can find those spots where you know, the, you can see on the map that there's a steep riverbanks everywhere. And then there's one low spot in the riverbank. Well, there's your path of least resistance or on the opposite thinking about deer wanting to stay safe. Well, if there's wide open field everywhere, and then there's one ravine with timber, well, that's the one safe way a buck could get from side a to side B without exposing himself. There's things like that that you can find when you study a map that will give you a really good guess as to how deer will use certain places. So what I would like to do heading into a cold turkey hunt is I'm going to think about the time of year, think about these features I just mentioned, and then try to pick, you know, maybe 10 spots that look really promising based on what I know about how deer behave at that time of year. And I'm going to have at least 10 spots pinned as, you know, high, you know, high interest locations. And I'm going to be thinking about, okay, 
this spot, I think, sure looks like a betting area. So I think that because I'm going to be hunting the first week of November, I think that should be a spot to hunt, you know, in the morning, in the middle of the day when bucks will be chasing does. And so I'm going to have a spot and I'm going to have a reason for that spot. And I'm going to have other spots for different reasons. I'm going to have spots for different wind directions. So I've got a few locations that I think should be good with a westerly wind. I'm going to have a few locations like if we somehow get a wonky east wind, I want to make sure I've got some ideas for that too. So I'm going to try to have as many possibilities prepared so that when I arrive on night number one or, you know, night before the day, before the hunt starts, I can look at the weather and I can say, all right, I've got this set of conditions. This means I can hunt this spot, this spot, or this spot. And then when I start a hunt, what I will, you know, this, this is going to differ. Sometimes I've gone into a hunt and I know I've got a good enough idea that I'll go in morning one and actually go and sneak into a spot and set up a tree um, in the morning and hunt that first morning. Other times I'll spend that first morning and midday scouting to check out my different locations because the next step of this process after you, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but. No, um, that was exactly my next question. <laughs> Once you put boots on the ground, you know, yeah. are you setting aside time specifically to scout or are you just kind of incorporating the scouting in your actual hunting? So no, keep you're headed right in the, the direction I was <laughs> okay. headed. So, all right. So, so then the next thing would be, you know, ground truthing those spots. So I've got all these places I think should be good. Now I want to confirm that with boots on the ground. Um, there's a lot of different ways you could go about this. Um, some people will go in and spend that whole first day checking them all out, walking all of those spots. And they just kind of write off that first day as a learning day. Um, I have not done that historically. Maybe I will. I, I am finding more and more that the more time I get to scout, the better. Um, so I'm, I'm trending more and more scouting centric every year because I'm finding, you know, it's, it's very easy to get locked into a spot and never know what's around the next corner, never know what's around the next bend. If you've never been there, if you've never been able to check it out and um, you might settle for something that is actually way below the potential simply because you never went to the far South corner. You never went to the pocket underneath the North Hill. Um, But what I've done up to this point is kind of a middle ground where I'll hunt, you know, maybe that first morning in an observation location because I can scout with my eyes right from a distance. And then I will spend a lot of time during the middle of the day walking a bunch of stuff and then trying to learn a lot. And then by the time I get to the last couple hours of daylight, I try to pick my best location for that evening hunt in a spot. Again, I can observe, watch a large distance if possible, or at least watch over a reasonably good looking spot. And then I'm going to repeat the process the next day. Hopefully hunt, you know, in a perfect scenario, one of these first spots you hunt, you're able to observe something that then you can zero in on. If I observe a deer that I'm interested in hunting or I see something that's worth, you know, spending more time on, then I'm going to start fine tuning. So, you know, let's say the first time I I walk around the first morning and midday, I scout out, you know, option A, option B, option C, none of them look that great. By the time I get to option D, I see what I'm looking for, let's say. Let's say this is one of those bedding areas that I marked. And I finally get to this bedding area and all the others were kind of pretty light on sign. Or maybe there was other people's tree stands. But now spot number D or spot D, I see four really nice rubs. And I find a couple scrapes. And there's no tree stands within sight of this place. And it's really hard to get to. But if you follow this creek bottom, you can get in there. 
And I don't think anybody else knows they could take this little roundabout way. And wow, this this just looks tore up. And it's it's what I was dreaming of. This is worth sitting. So now I'm going to set up there and I'm going to hunt that evening. And then I'm going to leave my stuff up so I can come back and hunt that next morning too without needing to set up in another tree. You know, that's a really nice way is hunt an evening, leave everything there, hunt the next morning. And now you can make a judgment call based on what you observed over those two sits. Do you make a fine tune adjustment because you spotted a deer and now you know, okay, I'm in the right zone, but actually all the deer I saw passed by 65 yards away. So if that's the case, well, tweak it, move your stand 50 yards over. Or if you sit there and it looked great, but you didn't see a single deer and actually there were two other guys that came walking by to hunt. Well, now you realize that maybe I was wrong. Let's pull down everything and let's go start scouting my, you know, options E, F, G, H and keep going down the line. So it's, it's a constant balancing act between trying to learn more while also giving any particular given location time to actually play out. Um, there's no, like nobody can tell you how to do that exactly. It's, it's always going to be. Um, a little bit of intuition and some experience and some guesswork to decide when to stay versus when to go. Uh, I think that's that's the fun of it. That's the hunt, right? It's trying to figure those two things out, what that balance is. But my my definite greatest learning experience over the last you know ten years has been the value of that scouting and and realizing that you're not going to. What am I trying to say here? Early on in my deer hunting journey, when I first decided that I wanted to try to hunt mature bucks, um, I was heavily influenced by some folks that were very, 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 very um, strong advocates for keeping pressure low on deer, right? Um, if you educate a deer once, you're done. You'll never see that deer again. You'll never get a chance that deer again if he crosses your tracks once or if you bump that deer once. And so because of that, I was very very concerned about ever, you know, walking around and bumping deer. Yep. What I've learned is that yes, there certainly are places where deer are particularly sensitive to, you know, human activity. My home state of Michigan being one of those places that I've certainly seen that. But every year I find myself, you know, able to get away with more than I ever used to think I could, especially, you know, in either lower pressure states or during the rut. We we got to remember n- you can go too far with this, but don't give them too much credit, right? I mean, going and walking through a place one time and learning it, I think gives you so much information and the risk is relatively low. If you bust a bunch of deer out of a spot once, I don't think it's going to ruin your hunt. So I'm becoming more and more aggressive when it comes to learning a place because I think that the payoff you can get is is significantly higher than the risk of, you know, spooking those deer one time, I mean, they're going to get right back to it pretty quickly. If you were to do that every single day for all seven days of your hunt, well then yeah, things are going to change. But on day one, going through or day two, checking out a spot, walking all around, it's not going to ruin your chances on day five or six, especially during the rut when deer are traveling from long distances that may have never been in the area when you did your walkabout. Um, so, so learning in person is, is just very, very important. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you there. That that's that's my internal struggle is always, you know, that balance between hunting and, and scouting and uh, you know, it, it's tough sometimes to give up time in the stand to uh to scout, but man, it's it definitely can pay off. 
Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, what What would you say would be a, a kind of a, a minimum time you would recommend for someone to do an an out of state deer hunt? A, a minimum number of days. Obviously, more is better, but yeah, you know, if they're if they're having to to sacrifice, you know, work time or, or family time or whatever, you know, to make these plans, what would you say? You know, you need at least this many days to try to make this happen. You know, I know guys who do it on weekends, and you know, they make it work. But if if it were up to me, I'd say I'd like at least four days. You know, four to seven days is was ideal, just because that first day or two is really a lot of learning unless you get lucky, right? You might pick the right spot early on, or you might pick the zone, right? Even though you went in cold Turkey and then the last three days are just zeroing in. Um, but I, I'd like to have at least a couple day buffer to figure stuff out so that you, you can then get a couple more days to actually hunt the good spot, which is why a seven day hunt, you know, is, is pretty ideal because you can allow yourself several days of figuring it out. I mean, I've had a whole lot of week long hunts where it took me all the way till day six or day seven to really figure out what's going on. You're going to have dud days. You're going to have days where you hunt a really good spot and it might be the spot, but you know, they just aren't there that day or the deer isn't there that day. So, uh, you gotta, you gotta have time to let things play out too. So I'd say the minimum amount of time is whatever you can swing. It's better to do it than to not do it. So don't let the fact that you only have the three days keep you from going. If that's the most you can get away with, do it. You'll still have fun. You can still have success. Maybe adjust your expectations a little bit. Maybe know that on your two-day weekend, maybe think of that as part one. And then you can go back the next year or maybe a month later and get part two in and get your next two days. And maybe on year three, you actually kill because you've got day five and six now. You know, um, Don't let that keep you away from trying it. But if you can swing a week, if you can get a full five days of work off and two weekends, you got nine days, man, that's, that's a great scenario if you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, as, as we wrap things up here, I guess, is there, is there anything we've missed or any any final tips for somebody who might be playing in their, their first out of state hunt? I think a couple things. One, I'd say, don't forget to plan for success. Right. So I think a lot of us spend a whole lot of time because there's a lot to figure out on the front end, which is where should I go? What gear should I bring? Where should I be hunting? How do I get permission? How do I get access? Where should I sit? How many cameras do I want up? How am I going to scout? Where should I do this? On What should I do with the west wind? What should I do with the north wind? Yada, yada, yada. Um, what happens if you do actually kill a deer? What are you going to do if you do actually get a shot? Do you have the equipment you need to get a deer out? Do you know the regulations well enough to know whether you can take that deer across county lines to a processor or if you need to remove the head and drop it off at a CWD uh, drop-off spot? Um, Do you have the ability to debone your meat before bringing it across state lines to your home? Uh, Whatever it might be, make sure you have prepared for that stuff. Make sure you've got a plan for how to keep your meat cool if you're hunting early season in a hot location. Don't forget about those things. And then all of a sudden have a deer down and it's 85 degrees and you're two hours or five hours away from the nearest gas station or processor or whatever. And you don't know how you're going to keep that meat from spoiling Uh, or you don't know how you're going to get that deer head back home because you don't know how to skin out or, you know, cut off deer antlers. You don't have a saw to take off the skull cap and get the flesh off and brain matter out. 
whatever it might be, make sure you have a plan and the proper equipment or process in place to both safely, ethically, and legally get your successfully harvested deer back to your home. Don't let that be an oversight. Um, that's super important. And I, I think some people sometimes skip past that because they're so focused on everything leading up to it. Um, the second thing I would say is, uh, is going back to the very first thing I think we started with, which is I would highly, highly, highly suggest you go into a hunt like this with your goal and your dream and your hope for the hunt being much more process focused and much less outcome focused. I think that you will enjoy these hunts more. I think you will be more successful. And I think you will be more interested in doing these kinds of hunts again if you're judging your trip not by whether or not you killed a four-year-old buck or whether or not you killed a 150-inch buck, but instead on judging this hunt based on how much fun it was, based on how much you learned, based on the time you got to spend in a beautiful place or the time you got to spend with friends or some combination of all those things. Um, let the chips fall where they may on whether you kill an animal, on whether you bring antlers and meat home. There's so many variables out of your control. I have had too many hunts or too many drives home where I've been ticked off and disappointed because I didn't have that outcome I wanted. And what a silly waste of my time to think like that when I had just had a whole lot of fun and could have had, you know, or should have been thinking about the experience I had and maybe would have enjoyed the experience more if I wasn't so obsessed with filling that tag. Um, so that's, this has been like the biggest transformation for me is trying to go from being a very outcome focused person, not just hunter, but person, uh, to, to getting, you know, more into just enjoying that process itself because traveling to hunt, doing these, these trips, it can be so much fun. It's such a great experience. It'd be a real shame to lose sight of that because of a tag. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And, and that first part. Yeah, it was something even I didn't think of going into this, but uh, yeah, there's with CWD, there's there's so many changing laws um, in in regard to you know what you can bring back, and uh, not only you have to think not only about the state you're hunting in and the state you live in, but the state you're driving through to get to get between the two. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a good point. Know the laws of of the states that that you're uh, you're hunting and and the state you live in and what you can bring back and what you can't and uh, yeah yeah be prepared to uh, to be able to handle that situation. So that that's good. Yeah. And then uh, of course, as you said there, just just you know make it make it more about the experience, not about a trophy animal. A trophy animal is great. That's uh, you know a mature buck or whatever you're after. Um. You know, that, that should just be the icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's awesome. If it comes together, it's, it's incredible. I oh, yeah. certainly yep. enjoyed it when it's come together. Um, you can have a lot of fun on those trips, even when it doesn't. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I said earlier, I, I think back to the ones I've been on and there, there hasn't been a single trip where, uh, I wish I had that money back, you know, that I, I wish I hadn't gone on that or, yeah, or, uh, you know, there, there's plenty of stuff that I've bought that I've said that about, but, uh, when it comes to these <laughs> <True>. trips, <laughs> when it comes to these trips, I, I have no regrets on any of them. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I would just encourage anybody listening that, that has, that has that dream to, uh, and just to, to make it happen. Probably the biggest thing, or at least for me 
is I, I got to get it on the calendar, you know, put it on the calendar, whether that's this fall or the fall of 2024, you know, get it on the calendar and then, you know, start planning, start saving and, and make it happen. And, yeah, uh, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. For, but for those, uh, Mark, who want to keep up with you online and, and through social media, what's, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. If they just look up wired to hunt, basically on whatever platform they like, you know, they'll, they'll find me there. And there's the Wired Down Instagram page, which is where most of my personal adventures and experiences are shared. There's the Wired to Hunt podcast, of course. There's the Wired to Hunt website where we've got new articles almost every day. Um, Facebook, YouTube, we've got videos going up. Uh, in September, we'll have that new show launching on the Meat Eater YouTube channel um, where you'll see some of these hunts I discussed. Um, so, so yeah, I check out that, uh, if you're the reading type, you might want to check out my book, that wild country an epic journey through the past, present and future of America's public lands. That's got some shed hunting in there, some deer hunting in there, uh, a bunch of other public land adventures and, uh, a little bit of, uh, history about how we got to have so many great public places where we can go and do these kinds of trips. So, uh, that'd be, that'd be the one other thing out there if, if they're interested. Where's where's the best place for them to to get that to look that up? Uh, most you know most bookstores you know go online. Amazon is the easiest one. You can find it. Uh, you can find it anywhere. Just just give it a little Google and you'll find it. All right, all right, yeah, and we'll we'll include links to that in the in the show notes as well. So, awesome. but, uh, yeah, Mark, I, I appreciate your time. Enjoyed it as always, and uh, l- looking forward to watching those hunts this September. Sounds great, Brian. I appreciate having me on. Yeah, take care. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Mark Kenyon. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.